Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 139. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against me? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In this personal psalm, David uses personal pronouns. He uses the personal pronoun me nine times. He uses the personal pronoun my 14 times. And he uses the personal pronoun I 19 times for a total of at least 42 times in this 24 verse poetic song. So when you hear someone criticize those who might say I or my or me in their reference to their hope in God, it might be an oversimplification. It might be an unnecessary criticism. Some might say, you know, the problem is that your speech has too many I's, me's, and my's in it. And that would be true if the I's, me's, and my's were used for boasting and drawing attention to oneself. But it is an oversimplification of one's speech to say that it's wrong. They may simply have forgotten that most people have concerns for their own life. Certainly David was concerned for his own welfare. As are you and as am I. But the point is that God is concerned 
for your welfare. God is concerned for my welfare. He is a God of personal affection. He is a God who has a special affection for those whom he created. You know, the truth is you can't really get through life without the use of personal pronouns. Can you imagine always referring to yourself in the third person? Now, that works when your kids are babies, when you say, oh, you know, mommy loves you, or you know daddy's going to tickle you, but it has to come to a stop at some point. If you're still saying that when they're in high school, now mommy wants you to finish your homework and clean up your room, by the time they're in college, they'll be working on having you institutionalized. You can't do that in the workplace. If your name is John and you tell everyone, good morning, everyone, John has arrived and will be here to fulfill your requests until noon, at which point... John will be taking a break. He'll return at 12.45, and his office door will be closed for some admin time, and then he'll emerge at 1.10, ready to take care of John's duties. That might get you fired. Kimberly was just telling me last week about her little cousin Kyle years ago who would go to his mother and say, Mommy, Kyle lied to his brother. Or, Mommy, Kyle wrote on on the wall with a crayon. And his mommy would say, well, Kyle, you're Kyle. (laughs) Nothing wrong with using first-person personal pronouns. David used them. David understood and wanted future readers to understand that God has a personal interest in our lives and our personal concerns and our personal circumstances. Now, lest you begin to think that this psalm is intended to build your self-esteem, just know that that is a flagrant twisting of Scripture. This psalm is not about man's greatness, lest he boast in himself. It is about God's greatness and his special condescending love for his special creation, mankind, and in particular, his love and care for man prior to his birth. In verses 1 through 18, we observe David's praise of God for his knowledge, his presence, and his power. And in verses 19 through 24, we see his petitions unto God that he would deal with the wickedness of the enemy, but also that he would deal with David's own wickedness. As we examine David's wonderment of God's greatness and love, May we ourselves be awe-stricken so that we will trust him and respond rightly to his enemies who shed innocent blood. These are the six things I want you to see from this text. Starting in verses 1 through 7, I want you to see God's omniscient affection. I want you to see God's omnipresent affection in verses 8 through 12. I want you to see God's omnipotent affection in verses 13 through 16. And then I want you to see the right response to God in light of his affection in verses 17 to 18. I want you to see the right response to God's murderous enemies in light of God's affection in verses 19 through 22. And in verses 23 through 24, I want you to see the right response to self in light of God's affection. Number one, I want you to see God's omniscient affection in verses 1 through 7. The term omniscient simply means all-knowing. Omni meaning all. Now, many of you are saying, I know that, but some don't. In fact, there was a time where you didn't. There was a time where I didn't. So I think it's important that we look at these terms in the context of their importance. 
So again, point number one, I want you to see God's omniscient or all-knowing affection. In verse 1 of this beautiful psalm, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. David points here to the all-knowing reality of God's affection for him. Now think of it this way. You've heard this phrase before. You may have even used it in reference to God's love for you, maybe even in reference to your parents' love for you. They know me inside out, and they still what? They still love me. (laughs) They still tolerate me. They know everything about me. They know all the details. And maybe you've said that about your spouse. My spouse has seen me at my worst, and yet she's still here and still cares for me and still loves me. This is what David is saying about God, that in God's greatness, despite our utter inadequacy, our utter inability to achieve any level of God's satisfaction at all, God's love for us is great. Now, this really takes the pressure off of the legalistic performance-based mindset of those who think that they've done something to bring to the table to Christ to say, look at me. So if you grew up in a works-based system or if you've been influenced by a works-based system, David really destroys all the mess that that is. And he points to the reality that God knows him inside and out. He knows the details of the nooks and crannies of his mind. He knows every wicked thought to the degree that it is wicked. He also knows every good thought to the degree that it is good. And that does not change his perspective on him. And here's how you and I ought to think about God's love for us. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Nothing you can do or say or even think can have any influence on God's love for you. And David knows this. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. These are the mundane details of life. Why would he mention this? Because everybody does it, and everybody does it a lot. So every time it happens, you and I think mostly nothing of it. Stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. You do it all day long, some more than others because of job responsibilities. But for God, every time it happens, his eye is on us. The idea is that his eye is always on us, even in the mundane details. You discern my thoughts from afar. You don't need to be literally sitting physically right here with me to ask me what's going on in my mind. You know. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This speaks of present proactive involvement. What? You search out. It's not as if God in his omniscience simply knows There is an intimate involvement on God's part to know deeply the contents of a person's heart. You are acquainted with all my ways. Nothing goes unobserved in your life by God. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Openness theology speaks of this idea that God is learning. He's watching you. He's watching mankind. He's watching history. And so his mind and his 
actions throughout history are greatly influenced by what man does. Not so, says David. God knew it before I said it. He is omniscient. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It seems like maybe David is taking a little bit of a turn here unto God's omnipotence, but he's really not. In verse 5, again, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. David's point is still the fact that God knows everything. And while he knows everything and every detail about your life and my life, he is yet willing to protect us. You hem me in. You protect me from that which would be harmful to me. This intimate level of fullness of knowledge is impossible for David to comprehend, and it's impossible for you and me to comprehend. Years ago, in my early 20s, when I was working, first job out of college, uh, I was getting to know a young man about my age who was in that same capacity in the workplace, and we talked about the things of the Lord on occasion, and ultimately he expressed to me his frustration with the whole thing by saying, it is impossible for one person, in reference to God, to know everything about everybody and care about it all the time. And so he has over-anthropomorphized the Lord. He has brought God down to his restricted ability to understand things. Of course, he couldn't understand that. And my response was, yeah, I don't understand that either, but it's true. And if God is creator, we don't even begin to fathom his intellectual capacity. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. Let's not forget, he created us. And he created us with limitations. And certainly didn't create us with the greatness with which he exists. He certainly didn't create us with his omniscience. There's no need for him to do that. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. It's obvious what that means. Watching the evil and the good. In addition to that, in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's different. It's one thing that God knows everything that goes on everywhere. It's another thing that he would have a special interest in those whose hearts belong to him. This is the heart of David. This is what David is expressing. God's special love is something that I appreciate. David wanted to be subject to God's omniscient affection for him, his all-knowing affection. And so you can imagine with this omniscient affection for individuals, when that individual might say something as ludicrous as, well, you know, God doesn't even exist, then, of course, God is offended by that. But God is not only offended by that, he's offended by every disobedient act or word or thought that you or I ever commit. And yet, he loves us. You see this in your parenting, those of you who have children. The first time your son or daughter did something that offended you, you probably didn't say, that's it. I'm done. I wasn't expecting this. But that also didn't happen the 10th time or the 100th time. 
It might have happened around the 300th time or so, I suppose. Uh, but you got over that. You got over that. Why? Not because your child proved to be love-worthy, but because you, in your disposition toward your child, love your child based on who you are, not based on who your child is. If your love for your children is performance-based, as long as they measure up, you're not loving your children like God. But you know that your desire in the privacy of your own heart is to love your children that way, even though you've failed just as I have. Yeah, we've all failed as parents to have a performance-based love for our kids. But by God's grace, because we recognize his love for us being what it is, we should and probably would want to go back to our children and say, I failed you in that moment, to be honest about it. That is one of the greatest privileges of the Christian faith. I was speaking with one of our under-shepherds yesterday who said that he had had a wonderful talk with someone in his family group and that it was a real joy to be able to say, you know you can trust me. You know you can tell me everything. You know that my best help for you is only going to be provided if I know the facts. That's how God operates with us. Therefore, that's how we really ought to operate with one another. It ought to be safe. Those of you who have children, your children ought to be safe with you to be able to tell you what's going on in their hearts. I think one of the greatest tragedies in families and in parenting is that by the time some folks get to be 16, 17, 18, they're scared to death to tell their parents anything for fear of simple retribution rather than a loving, corrective response. And that can be corrected. By God's grace, we as parents can turn a corner and exhibit the kind of love for our children that God has for us. It's not an omniscient affection, but that omniscient affection ought to be modeled in our parenting. So I want you to have seen here the clarity of God's omniscient affection for us. He knows all, and yet his affection for us is very, very personal. Number two, I want you to see God's omnipresent affection. In verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? We call this a rhetorical question, right? Meaning that the answer is obvious. There really isn't an answer expected because the answer is in the reality of the question. Where could I go from your spirit? You can't depart from God's spirit because God's spirit is everywhere. There is not one place where God's spirit is not present or where shall I flee from your presence? Another way of asking the same question. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And this is a reference to hell. Sheol, as we've talked about before, being a more generic term re related to the afterlife, uh, that which comes after life on earth. But in contrast to heaven, here he's speaking in reference to hell. And so there's a sense in which God's presence is there in hell. Paul Washer has done a great job of explaining the fact that when God saves you, he saves you from God. He saves you from his eternal wrath, which you and I fully and completely deserve for our sinful condition. So it's not as if God is absent in hell. It is as if, because it is true, that God is giving oversight to that eternal torment. Seventh-day Adventists, in particular, want you to believe that when you die, you simply cease to exist. 
we call this annihilationism. It's a heresy. It's not just wrong teaching. It's heretical. It is closely tied to the false gospel of Adventism. And in so doing, in teaching that, of course, they eliminate the need in some people's minds for an interest in understanding how to overcome or how to sidestep eternal torment. Eternal torment is for those who reject the loving, gracious gospel of Jesus Christ who died for sins and was resurrected for new life. And David here says, even if I'm not in that capacity, even if I'm not in that category, if I were to go not to heaven but to hell, your presence would be ever aware. I would be conscious of the fact that you exist. And we know this from Romans 1, that God has written his existence on man's heart. He's written his existence in creation. The person who says there is no God, Psalm 14.1 tells us, is a fool. Why does that make him a fool? Because he's saying something that he knows is not true. And someone may have persuaded you along the way, if your theology is experience-based rather than Bible-based, someone may have persuaded you. Now, you weren't persuaded ever that this was true of you. But you may have been persuaded by someone else that he or she actually believes that God does not exist. But he can't believe that because God has written his existence in man's heart and in creation. When you see creation, you know there is a creator. And that creator is ever-present. He is omnipresent. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. This is further than just being ever-present. In that ever-presence, in that omnipresence, there is a personal affection that results in personal, intimate care. If I start out in the dawn of the day with an effort to separate myself as far as I possibly can from my current location... If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. <laughs> Think of it. If you were to hide, if you were to hope to hide in such a way that you might never be found, what might be the best place to go? The depths of the sea. It's really tricky to find you there if that's where you go. But not for God. Why? Because he's there. He's not only there. He expresses an affection for those who would run to that distance. And maybe one of the first people that comes to mind when you think of this reality is Jonah, who did all he could, not so much to run from a particular people, but from a task given to him by God and therefore to run from God. There was no escape. God gave him just enough rope for him to think that there was an opportunity for escape. But truth triumphed. And that's how it works with you. If you've been exposed to truth, legitimate truth, and in that exposure you've come to an awareness that there have been those who have attempted to deceive you, then you love that truth. And Peter speaks of that truth in 1 Peter chapter 2 as that which you devour as a newborn baby. P. 
Peter, as you know, is not speaking there about infant Christians. He's speaking about all Christians having such a hunger for truth that they drink it down voraciously as a baby drinks down the nutritious milk that his mother provides for him. Verse 11, if I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Again, this speaks so clearly of God's omniscience and his lack of need for the light that you and I need, the physical light that you and I need to be able to see what's going on. I don't have to illustrate this for you. You've been in circumstances where you thought, if only there were a light switch, if only there were some way for me to get light on the subject, I might do better at what I'm trying to accomplish here. God doesn't need that light. God is not in need of that, not only regarding his omniscience, but his omnipresence. The darkness does nothing to mitigate the power of his presence. Nothing. God is present everywhere. For you and I, wherever we are, wherever we are present, darkness would mitigate or diminish our ability to comprehend, to perform, to function, to do that which we are responsible to do, not God. God, in his omnipresence, fully and completely overcomes whatever difficulty there might be in the moment. So we've looked at God's omniscient affection. We've also looked at his omnipresent affection. Number three, I want you to see God's omnipotent affection, his all-powerful affection. Verse 13, and this may be the section of Psalm 139 with which you are most familiar. You've heard it many, many times. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This speaks of intimate affection. This speaks of the reality that not only were your parents, obviously, involved in your conception, but God was certainly and intimately involved in your conception. That God would form you really out of nothing is something that God and God alone could do. In the same way that when God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, the Latin term for this is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing. Nothing existed. This is really difficult to communicate to your kids. Have you ever noticed that? There was nothing. You mean there was like just dirt? No, there was nothing. So you mean there was like stuff? No, there was no stuff. There was, there, nothing existed. But the truth is I don't understand it either. We're trying to communicate something to our children that we've never experienced. So God didn't exist either? No, God existed, but nothing else did. Many of you have heard Lloyd Ogilvy say, God was lonely. God was not lonely. God was perfectly content without the heavens, without the earth, and without you and me to mess up his day. And yet in his sovereign wisdom, he determined to create man that he would pour out his affection upon him, that God would ultimately receive glory in doing that. Obviously, God receives that glory. Who else could? Well, we can de-glorify him. We can try to steal his glory, but God says that he won't be mocked. Isn't it kind of not just ironic, but phenomenal? 
that man would accuse God, number one, of not existing, but number two, of somehow having not created all that exists. It's outrageous. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. If you're reading the NAS, it says, I thank you. I give you my thanks for the fact that you did that. Your intimate knowledge, your intimate presence, your intimate power were such that your forming of me is really based upon those truths. Your love for me, your interest in me is so greatness driven and yet affection focused. How could I not be thankful? How could I not, when I examine these truths about God and the reality that he created me with such intimate affection, how could I respond with a sour attitude? You say, well, because circumstances get in the way and cloud our thinking. Exactly. So it's so important that you and I have a high view of God based on scripture. The worst thing you can do in life is stop reading your Bible, especially to stop reading the parts about God. Now, I know it's all about God, but there are places in Scripture that show us in particular the, the character of God in its details, and this is one of them. This is such an important psalm that you would see two things, that you would see the greatness of God, but you would see his intimate affection for you. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And again, there is often a twisting of this section so as to communicate and proliferate the self-esteem idea. Now, you know this. We've been over this time and time and time again. Jesus said, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself. There's never, ever the command or the implication that you should love yourself. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul points out the reality that the person who loves himself is not a Christian. It's black and white. But because of that hunger for self-exaltation, there will be those who will take this passage and say, aren't you amazing? Now, is the human anatomy amazing? Yes. How could, this is, a, this is even equally amazing, that someone who studies human anatomy would say there is no God. It's obviously an intentional effort to simply be dishonest about reality. The anatomy of the human body is, is beyond amazing. Who can fathom it? Who can understand it? No one can understand the autonomous ability of the human body. How is it possible that I'm standing here with a beating heart that I can walk, that I can breathe. The book of Colossians would tell us that it is Jesus who literally sustains that in us. He sustains the spinning of the planet, the works and the congruity of all the planets and all the solar systems. Jesus maintains that. The Bible says he sustains it. That's how that works. But in the same way that he does that from a distance is reflective of the reality that what he created is an amazing reality. So where he says, 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The point is that in that making, in that creative process, that which is created should result in fear and wonderment of the one who examines it. It's not unusual to hear stories of those who have studied human anatomy and turned from their supposed atheism because they became aware of the amazing reality of what God has created in its intricacy. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Again, a reflection of the fact that in his soul, in the depths of his heart, David knew these things to be true of God. And yet man would want to dismiss them as if they are not true. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Somewhat of a reference back to the first human created, intricately uh, woven in the depths of the earth. You ever think about this? What did God create man out of? You ever try to make something out of dirt? How'd that go? Okay, it was four and it was a mud pie and it seemed wonderful. But you're not four anymore. And you know it's still just mud. I mean, even in man's greatest efforts to build something out of mud, it's still mud. It's still dirt. Amazingly, what God created in that first human is what you and I will ultimately return to. So who gets the glory? You see, you're disposable, and so am I. What God has given us in terms of a body is disposable. Your soul's not. Your body's a tent. That's how Paul refers to it. Use it for a time. Use it up. Hopefully use it well. Use it faithfully. It's called a temple if the Spirit of God resides in you. So treat it well. Use it to the best of your ability to glorify God. You're going to glorify God anyway, inadvertently, just in the fact that you are breathing. That's an amazing miracle that only God could accomplish. But far better to be involved in that, that which results in God's glory, resulting in your good, so that you could proclaim the greatness of a great God. It's amazing that he's given us the ability and the privilege to do that, and David really sets the tone for us. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This speaks of God's sovereignty, his sovereign control over the days of your life, that there would be a beginning and that there would be an end. God knows when that is. You don't. He does. He determined it. He determined it in his omnipotence. Only God could do what David has explained here. You say, well, what about the whole cloning procedure that's going on, you know, in the medical community? And, you know, I remember back in the early 90s, someone had apparently cloned a sheep. It's a copy. It's a seemingly amazing Xerox copy. And that's all it is. Some have asked the question, if man were to be able to clone man, would that new man have a soul? Let me just tell you the answer is no, because it's a copy. It's not a human being. Whatever it is does not reflect the greatness 
of God's glory in his omnipotence. Where he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, he's pointing to the reality that God knew what you would become. He knew what you would become physically, not only spiritually and intellectually and mentally, but he knew what you would become physically. And in your book were written every one of them. Every one of the details of my life, every one of your works that would have anything to do with my existence, my frame, all that I was, all that I would be. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, you knew. God knew the number of days. He knew the first day. He knew the last day. This is a little bit easier for us to grasp than it is all the other details in between. We can confidently say, I know that the Lord is sovereign over my birth date and my death date. What's a little more difficult for us is to understand how he's sovereign over the details in between. But we should be aware of the fact that if he's sovereign over the bookends, he's probably sovereign over the books. We've got to be able to trust him because of this omnipotence, but also the fact that it is an omnipotent affection. In his power to do this, he did it for his glory, but for our good. Number four, I also want you to see the right response to God in light of his affection. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I would count them. They are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. So David is speaking here of the wonderment of the reality that when he goes to sleep and is in that somewhat unconscious state, if you will, being asleep, when he awakes, he is acknowledging, he is aware of the fact that God's omnipresence is still a reality. But it's the right response to acknowledge it. Listen to this. And run this Run your own experience through the grid of what David is saying here. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How do you know what God's thoughts are? By reading your Bible. By looking specifically at what God has said about himself. You don't need an experience to know that. In fact, I would encourage you to to be suspect of your experience. tenaciously suspect of your experience and tenaciously committed to simply sticking to what God has said about himself. That is exactly enough for you to respond rightly. Friends, let me tell you, what's happened in the charismatic movement is a result, a specific result of the fact that the idea of God's thoughts being precious is not on the map for those who simply want an experience. Now, am I downgrading experience? No, your experience ought to be amazing based on what you know about God from his word. But at the point that you start trying to develop your theology, specifically your thoughts about God from your experience, they are going to be wrong. And the phrase goes like this usually, but what if scripture ratifies it? What if scripture verifies it? Why? Why would you want that? Why wouldn't you simply want to believe God's thoughts as he has given them to you in perfection? Anything else is going to get you off the rails. The right response to God's affection for you is to read and meditate upon and memorize and proclaim his word. To know it and to know it well. To live in light 
of it. How vast is the sum of those thoughts, those specific thoughts that God has established for his children. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. You ever been to the beach? <laughs> Try counting the sand, and you'll get some idea within about 15 seconds or less of how innumerable, really, God's thoughts toward you are. I awake, and I am still with you. Why? Because of your omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent affection for me. Well, number five, in verses 19 to 22, I want you to see the right response to God's murderous enemies in light of God's affection. The right response to God's murderous enemies in light of God's affection. David here really makes a confession. Be careful that you don't develop your theology based upon the Psalms. Why? Because much of what's recorded in the Psalms is a reflection of David's hearts and the hearts of the other writers of the Psalms. Now, when David proclaims something about God, we know that to be true, but when he confesses something that is in his, is in, in his heart, be careful that you don't embrace that as sound theology. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. This is what's referred to as an imprecatory prayer. I would not encourage you to pray imprecatory prayers. God will slay whom he determines to slay. But David, being under siege for much of his kingship, for much of his leadership over Israel, and we don't know the timing of this psalm, but we know in many of the psalms he's lamenting over being chased down, one by his governmental father, Saul, and then by his son, Absalom, as well as by others. And the sadness that overtook David in the midst of that was great. And at times, as you can imagine, David would cry out to God, God, just kill them. Just stop them. And even David. Now, David, with sound theology, didn't kill Saul when he could have twice. He could easily have had his son Absalom taken out. And when Absalom died, he wept. So it was not in David's heart, ultimately. But as he's thinking out loud, you see this with David a number of times. You see the spiritual change take place recorded in scripture for us i think this is one of those texts where you see that oh that you would slay the wicked O god O men of blood depart from me this is an indictment upon those who shed innocent blood they speak against you with malicious intent so they not only kill the innocent they speak poorly of god they have a low view of god your enemies take your name in vain and this isn't so much of what you and I might think of initially in our Western culture regarding taking the Lord's name in vain, but it would be to proclaim that one has an interest in God while he actually doesn't, to give lip service to God, but to show with one's life that there is no real interest in the true God of heaven. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? You know, the trouble with that statement is that God's hatred is righteous and ours is not. Where we are told in Psalm 5.5, in Psalm 11, 5, that God hates the sinner, that God hates the one who commits iniquity. That's a righteous hatred. It's not the selfish hatred that you or I experience when someone does something to us that we think is unjust, and we want them to be punished. You see, that's a sinful, wicked 
hatred, but God's hatred is such that in his utter and complete pure goodness and righteousness, he cannot love that which is unrighteous in the way that you and I would love it. But at the same time, you know that Jesus with the rich young ruler who walked away sad had expressed his love to him. So does God hate or does he love the sinner? Both. He has a righteous hatred and he has a righteous love. For you and I, that might seem duplicitous. It might seem contradictory. And it would be if you or I attempted to accomplish it the way God has accomplished it. But God ultimately has set himself against that which is evil. He has set himself against. That's what the Hebrew term for hatred means. It means to literally be opposed to those who are opposed to him. We call this enmity. Enmity comes from enemy. And so if God is at enmity with us, he's going to oppose us, and he's going to do it practically so. We see this kind of condensed in 1 Peter and in the book of James where he says he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. There's much to be said about this. But in light of much of what has taken place in our culture in recent days, I wanted to deal with this from the perspective of how you and I ought to be thinking about the innumerable killings, the murder of babies. David is right when he refers to them as wicked, men who shed blood. He asks God that they would depart from him. He speaks of their malicious intent. Since 1972, with Roe versus Wade, as you probably know, 55 million babies have been legally murdered at a rate now of 4,000 per day. That's one baby every 21.6 seconds and in a violent manner. Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger said these words. It's the woman who founded Planned Parenthood. We should apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted. He's talking about black people. Or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. Now, she didn't include only black people, but that was the primary target of her murderous intent. She also, in Article 1 of Plan for Peace from Birth Control Review in 1932, established these words. It's the first article of what's referred to as Plan for Peace, the doctrinal statement of Planned Parenthood. Here it is. The purpose of the American Baby Code shall be to provide for a better distribution of babies and to protect society against the propagation and increase of the unfit. She might be most famous for these words. The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. One well-known theologian wrote a blog post recently that said, they're killing babies. We all know it. So the great 
public relations move of Planned Parenthood has been to convince people that it's what? It's not killing a baby. But it is. At all points and at any point. Recently, a substantial number of videos have been released by a reputable organization called the Center for Medical Progress, revealing that Planned Parenthood has not only murdered millions and millions of babies, but have also been systematically selling the baby's body parts, and in some cases, their entire bodies. If you've watched any of these videos, you've probably seen the one woman who works for Planned Parenthood. Now, many people are saying, oh, the videos are fake. That's weird, because the people in the videos are the people who work in management for Planned Parenthood who are making these statements. This woman indicated quite clearly and specifically that they purpose to crush certain parts and leave other parts uncrushed so that they can be sold. When these videos began to surface, Planned Parenthood quickly hired a well-known and very successful public relations firm to do damage control. One of the PR company's efforts was to persuade Planned Parenthood to sue this organization that was releasing the videos. And just as quickly, the courts shut down Planned Parenthood's suit, stating that, and I quote, this proposed injunction would constitute a prior restraint on the defendant's rights under the First Amendment and the parallel protections under the California Constitution, end quote. In other words, they have every right to have made the recordings that they made. There's absolutely nothing illegal about these videos if you've seen any of them. Some would say, well, they've been edited. Well, of course they've been edited down to a seven or eight minute excerpt so that people can watch them. But the whole of the videos in their hours long reality are posted online as well. You can watch the whole thing. The court's statement goes on secondly to say, and I quote, even if plaintiff's evidence demonstrates that the videotapes were obtained in violation of penal code section 632, Section 632 does not prohibit the disclosure of information gathered in violation of its terms. For that reason, the court is unlikely to enjoin the dissemination of the tapes. They're saying they would do nothing to stop the dissemination of the recordings. Nor does Penal Code Section 637.2 help plaintiffs, Planned Parenthood. That section permits a person injured by a violation of Penal Code Section 632 to bring an action to enjoin and restrain such violation. It does not permit an action to prevent the dissemination of the unlawfully obtained recording. So even if they were illegal, which they're not, it would not be illegal to disseminate them. That's what the court says. Accordingly, I continue with the quote, even if plaintiff may demonstrate a probability, even an overwhelming probability, that it will prevail on the merits of its claims under Penal Code Section 632, it will not be entitled to injunctive relief. As a result, there is no good cause to permit discovery as it has not been demonstrated that there is a reasonable probability the court will ever reach the issues of the probability of prevailing on the merits of the plaintiff's causes of action or the imminent nature of the harm to be enjoined. In this legal jargon, what they're essentially saying is that the court very likely will never ever side with Planned Parenthood in their efforts to prevent the disclosure of these videos. The people who call them fake don't want to recognize the reality of what has been going on. In a report posted this Friday, two days ago, the Center for Medical Progress wrote, in 1972, pediatric research journal 
published a paper submitted by researchers from the Department of Pediatric Research at New York State and Mount Sinai School of Medicine of the City University of New York in collaboration with a researcher from the Departments of Medical Chemistry and Obstetrics and Gynecology of the University of Helsinki in Finland. The paper was titled, Development of Mammalian Sulfur Metabolism, Absence of Cystothionase in Human Fetal Tissues. The article goes on to say, the fetuses presented a special test case. Since the fetuses were still alive at the beginning of the experiment, in their mother's wombs, in vivo, experiments were possible. The phrase in vivo is Latin and means within the living. With already deceased specimens, they could only measure the presence of amino acids after death. This type of analysis is an in vitro, in the glass. Think in vitro fertilization procedure. With the still living fetuses, they could actually inject a known amount of amino acids, SL-methionine and SL-cysteine, in vivo, into a living fetus and test how much of these substances were incorporated into fetal organs via the biological machinery of life over a set amount of time. The researchers therefore conducted the in vivo experiments by surgically cutting open the uterus of the mother, lifting out the living fetus with the umbilical cord still attached and injecting the amino acids into the umbilical vein. Then they waited 10 minutes with the heart still beating and the fetus still moving to allow the body to distribute and metabolize the amino acids. After 10 minutes, they cut the umbilical cord, dissected the brain and liver from the body of the fetus, and dropped the organs into nitrogen to await analysis." End quote. Unconscionable. And yet our society is so desensitized that a woman running for the President of the United States can say, I stand with Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood had said that only 3% of taxpayers' dollars go to abortions, which is a lie. But if it were true, listen to this from the New York Post, not exactly a conservative journal entity. How much credit would we give someone for saying he only drives drunk 3% of the time? or only cheats on business trips 3% of the time, or only hits his wife during 3% of domestic disputes. The 3% factoid is crafted to obscure the reality of Planned Parenthood's business. The group performs about 330,000 abortions a year, or roughly 30% of all the abortions in the country. By its own accounting, in its 2013-2014 annual report, it provides about as many abortions as PAP tests, 380,000. The group does more breast exams and provides more breast care services, 490,000, but not by that much. The 3% figure is derived by counting abortion as just another service like much less consequential services. So abortion is considered a service no different than a pregnancy test, 1.1 million. Even though a box with two pregnancy tests can be produced from the local drugstore for less than $10. By Planned Parenthood's math, a woman who gets an abortion but also a pregnancy test, an STD test, and some contraceptives has received four services, and only 25% of them are abortion. 
This is a little like performing an abortion and giving a woman an aspirin and saying only half of what you do is abortion. Such cracked reasoning could be used to obscure the purpose of any organization. The sponsors of the New York City Marathon could count each small cup of water they hand out, some two million cups, compared with 45,000 runners, and say that they are mainly in the hydration business. Or Major League Baseball teams could say that they sell about 20 million hot dogs and play 2,430 games in a season, so baseball is only 0.012% of what they do. Supporters of Planned Parenthood want to use its health services as leverage to preserve its abortions as if you can't get one without the other. This is wicked. It's wicked. And it is agenda driven. And it's difficult to even comprehend what to do about it. But the starting place has to be living in reality. The starting place has to be acknowledging that it is murder in all cases. It is the shedding of innocent blood, to use biblical terminology. And friends, this is how you and I must think of it. And there is a greater wickedness of those who promote it. So I want you to see the right response to God's murderous enemies in light of God's affection. And it would be this, not to address it as something other than wickedness. It would be to not water it down and call it something it's not. I would encourage you to not so much use the word abortion, but to call it baby murder. That's what it is. To be skilled and educated with regard to the history of Planned Parenthood, as well as other organizations that kill babies, to be willing to stand in the gap for babies, however that might look. Maybe the Lord's been moving on your heart to be the person by which the Lord would use our church to minister to those who are in desperate and horrible circumstances, who think their only option is to go to Planned Parenthood. I don't know what the Lord might do, but I believe he will do something, and I believe it's incumbent upon us to start thinking and strategizing and planning and praying about how the Lord will use us to save babies, that we also might be effectively involved in the salvation of their parents. It's so easy, friends, for you and I to just be critical of Planned Parenthood, and that doesn't do anything. It doesn't help anything to just stop there. It's important that we be rightly informed. What is the right response to God's murderous enemies in light of God's affection. It is to thank him for the protection that he has granted us, but to call murder, murder. But then in addition to that, to be effectively willing to ask how we can be involved. So point number six, I want you to see the right response to self, the right response to self in light of God's affection. In verses 23 and 24, David says, Search me, O God. And I find that in our Western culture, there is such a propensity for us in the church to just think critically about others and not about our own spiritual condition and our actions and our words and our thoughts. Search me, 
O God, and know my heart. Now, David has already proclaimed that God has this ability and this propensity. God does know the inner workings of David's heart. And so David says, take it a step further. Do it. Do it regularly. Father, God, practice this examination of my heart. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. Put me on trial. Oh, Lord, I can be so quick to put others on trial. How is that helpful? What Planned Parenthood is and what abortion is is obvious. There almost needs to be no discussion about it. We really ought to jump to the issue of the condition of our own hearts. And I'm I'm not even talking so much about the apathy and the non-action of Christians and churches. I'm talking more so about the hidden sins of the human heart that really prevent us from being effectively involved in anyone else's life. You know this. You can't legitimately or possibly with any degree of credibility attempt to help someone with a splinter in their eye if you've got a log in your own. David doesn't want to live that way. Try me and know my thoughts. See, Lord, see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, lead me in the way that gives evidence of my eternal life. That you have, as we talked about last week, set me apart unto holiness. Father, lead me in that way. If we're going to get angry, let's start with self. I've watched a number of videos this week and in previous weeks of pastors who just rail on women who have had abortions. And they rail on those who have provided the opportunity for women to have abortions. That stuff is obvious. I think for you and I, especially me up here in front of you, to spend time doing that would be a waste of your time and mine. I'm not saying that it's not evil and it's not wicked. We've been through that. But the point is there are extenuating circumstances in people's lives that lead to their insensitivity, that leads to their sin. And the same is true for you and me. And if all we do is express our critical spirit towards those who have sinned in ways we haven't, we are the hypocrite of Romans 2 who says, who are you to judge? Charles Spurgeon here points out, David really is saying, as I hate their wicked ways, so would I hate every wicked way in myself. He who is wise restrains his lips because he's got a clue that he occasionally thinks things that shouldn't be articulated. 1 Corinthians 4, listen to this, so helpful. This is Paul. It's Paul the Apostle. Verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's talking about the, the pastoral responsibility of delivering truth given him by God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Right? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, an elder must be above reproach. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, but to me, listen to this, but to me, It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Now, Paul's letters are replete with expressions of the need to be examined by others. But in this context where Paul, as you know, has been criticized for being unfaithful, untrustworthy in ministry, he's saying, ultimately, you're not my judge. He's not saying, I don't care what you think. We know better than that. But he says... 
To me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. I am not genuinely declared right or righteous because of my own assessment of me. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Ultimately, God is the authority. God is the judge. God is the one who assesses us with accuracy. And we must long for that. How does that come? Bible reading, Bible teaching, interaction with Christians, fellowship, discipleship, a willingness to be subject to others. See, I thought Paul said he doesn't really give much credence to what other people think. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in contrast to the Lord's assessment, the assessment of others, and even himself is not the issue. God doesn't speak literally to you, right? Except through his word. And he uses those who are subject to his word to help you know you. And this is what David wanted. Search me, God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way or any wayward way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lest you and I think that we somehow are better than someone who has initiated an abortion, whether herself or you know, the boyfriend of a girl who accidentally became pregnant. Let me remind you and me that in Matthew 5, Jesus equates anger against your brother with murder. He equates looking on a woman with adultery, which, by the way, sometimes leads to accidental pregnancy. The responsibility of dealing with a pregnancy many times leads to a fatal and very, very bad and very, very wicked decision. But how about you and I being more committed to having God search our hearts by asking the question, who have I murdered today? But on a spiritual level, you and I can so easily be critical of others for their sin while we're not even willing to consider the seriousness of our own. We ought to take heed to what our Savior has said. He turned the Jews on their ear when he made that statement. But the, real, the real issue with a pregnancy in terms of God's perspective is not the pregnancy. It's the sin that led to it. God knit together in the womb, the baby. And by the way, the woman's right, the prenatal rights, the postnatal rights, whatever rights the woman has, whatever she thinks they are, were already exercised by the time the fetus is conceived. So the woman or the person or the man, whoever, who insists she has rights, it's her body, it's her choice, ought to be asked the question, what about the rights and the choice of the woman in the womb? 
This is what you and I need to be willing to graciously and lovingly communicate to those who have been deceived. And as I said, there is a greater accountability and a greater punishment for those who influence women to murder their babies. So what will the Lord have us do? How will he have us be involved? I don't know. I don't know. But I expect it will be great. I expect the Lord will use us to stand in front of abortion clinics and to plead with women with grace and love, not to kill their baby. I expect the Lord will use us to communicate truth to those in relationships that you know. You, you may know someone who is considering or one day will consider ending that life in her. And you and I have the great responsibility and privilege to communicate truth in a way, in a gracious and loving way that could and we hope would influence her to save that baby. You know, the last time my wife told me she was pregnant, I wasn't ready for it. Can you relate, guys? Anybody? I hope. Not just me, right? In fact, every time my wife told me she was pregnant, I was not ready for it. She's usually done it in creative ways. The last time my wife told me that she was pregnant, I was so not ready for it that I probably shook my head for three or four days saying, we were done. And I've got my standard one-liners. You know, when someone asks, are you going to try for a girl? We say, we tried that. <laughs> we don't know how to make girls. <laughs> we told one person years ago, we've decided to have all boys. <laughs> we have two babies in heaven. Some of you do as well. But the last time my wife told me that we were going to have a baby was about 10 days ago. Yeah, you heard it. <laughs> so I want you to look back there. And I want you to understand, I want you to know, and, and many of you can relate to this, five of the six people back there were surprises. And not once, not once, although I'm thinking, we were done. How are we going to do this? We already got the biggest car they make, <laughs> except for the club wagon. My wife told me years ago, I'll never drive a minivan. We fell in love with our minivan. I doubt we're going to fall in love with the club wagon. But just as those of you who've gotten the news, you men, that there was a baby in your wife's womb, or perhaps you were married and you were stunned and you thought, what will we do? And you were scared to death to tell your parents. I was scared to death to tell Kimberly's parents yesterday. <laughs> we told them they were going to have to get a bigger motorhome for a dozen grandchildren. Be the person who first says, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. 
See if there be any wicked way in my heart. You know, the consideration of, of ending a, a life has never crossed our minds. <laughs> Even though it's been a surprise every time, we've, we've always thought, you know, kind of double-mindedly, right? What in the world? And yet, thank you. You know, Kimberly's dad asked me yesterday, so have you gotten over the shock? And I said, I'll tell you in about a year. But it's a double-minded thing. We're very, very excited, and yet we're thinking, what in the world? And we know we'll have your help, and you know that you have our help. But I want to ask you right now, as we close our service, to pray and to plead with the Lord to give you grace and mercy and love and patience and kindness for those who have either gone to an abortion clinic and gone through with it or are considering it in whose life you may have some influence because you don't know what that girl has been through or is going through. You might have had a similar experience, but you do not know about her life. And the wrong thing to do is to simply exercise judgment and call it sin what were you thinking? How could you do it? She's already gone through all of that herself. She doesn't need that from you or me or anyone. What she needs and what her boyfriend needs and what others need is someone who has tenaciously said, Lord, search my heart. Father, we thank you this morning for every little one represented by every person here. As we hear the the little ones in the room next door playing and screaming and singing and all the things that they do, we rejoice that you've given them the grace to live life. I think of Peter's words where he calls upon men to thank the Lord for the grace of life, just human life, not spiritual life, but the grace of life with a spouse. Lord, as the world is awakening to what Planned Parenthood has been doing for decades, may we be less willing to argue with people about what has and hasn't happened and more willing to examine our own hearts and ask how we might be faithfully used by you to save babies that you would save the eternal souls of their parents. And we ask this all in Christ's name.